Hello and welcome to Transforming Education, a podcast brought to you by VEO. In this episode, we are delving into the educational phenomenon of walkthroughs. And I will quote Dylan William here on walkthroughs, who has said, teaching is such a complex endeavour that the idea of a complete guide to teaching excellence is surely impossible. But this comes closer than anything I have seen to date. Walkthroughs are a new way of looking at visualizing existing teaching strategies in a context-free and step-by-step way. They were created by today's guest, Tom Sherrington, and his co-creator, Oliver Caviglioli. Tom has taught and led in schools since the 1980s and has already authored educational books such as The Learning Rainforest, Great Teaching in Real Classrooms, and Rosenshine's Principles in Action. In this episode, I questioned Tom on the why behind walkthroughs. Why were they designed and how does their design make them compelling? I questioned Tom on the what, what strategies are included and how are they sequenced? And we also explore the how, how are schools implementing walkthroughs in practice and what lessons can I learn as a host and what lessons can you learn as a listener from Tom's experiences? I also delve a little bit into Tom's vision and plan for the future. Tom's walkthroughs cover many of the thought leaders I'm interested in speaking with or have already spoken to on this podcast previously, and it was so enlightening to see how he has assimilated all of these large, abstract thoughts into digestible chunks. Before we start, I also want to say thank you to you as a listener. We have grown so much over the last year and it is only because of people like you joining me on this journey. I have received some really lovely feedback from people on this podcast, and I'm so very grateful. If you're enjoying these episodes, please do subscribe, rate, or leave a review. It really does help us to reach more people. And in a sense, you can be part of the narrative and also help us to transform education by getting more teachers and educators listening to the research on this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me once again, and I hope you enjoy the recording. So, hi, Tom. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, me this evening. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing very well, thank you. It's nice to be joining you for this conversation. Well, yeah, no, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, I've, uh, as we were talking about before, I work with lots of schools, and um, many of the schools that I, I work with are very excited and very engaged in your walkthrough collection of books and are really interested in, in them and, and are implementing them um, into their own practice. And I'm chuffed to have you on the show today to talk a little bit about your walkthroughs. And, and because your walkthroughs are a little bit different to some of the other guests I've had on the show who are focused potentially on one specific aspect of teaching and learning, whereas yours are more of a range of different techniques. I thought I'd just chuck you right in the deep end straight away and ask you a really difficult question and say, Tom, how are your walkthroughs transforming education? <laughs> it's funny because it, it's, 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 it's difficult to respond to that without sort of sounding ridiculously egotistical, isn't it? <laughs> so you'll, no, you'll never sound egotistical so if you give me an honest answer to this. Self-deprecating about that and say, I'm not sure if that's really true, but... I, I can tell you this. So, for example, there's a just where I live now in in Harringay, North London. There's the borough of Harringay. They have a, a an organisation called Harringay Education Partnership, 
which deals with their school improvement and so on. And they, they've got 65 schools now, uh, primary schools mainly, uh, into a programme with walkthroughs. And the, the, the people who run HEP, as it's known, uh, including Fran Hargrove, who's, who's the, the, the deputy CEO of it, she runs this whole thing. Every time I talk to her, she, she says to me something like, you have no idea, do you? Just the difference this has made to us. And she just keeps on telling me that. So I just think, well, so why? But, but she says, because everywhere I go into all the schools that are in it, everyone's talking the language. Everyone, there's this common language. And mm-hmm. so now we're talking about checking for understanding or cold calling or say it again better or or some of the strategies like for teachers to work like unseen observation or whatever. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows what you mean. And the fact that there's this common language for talking about teaching uh, in all the schools that's the same has just made that they're just far more focused on how to do it well and whether it's happening instead of constantly having to redefine things. And she's just so she's she's just one example of someone who just tells me that it's made a huge difference to them. Mm-hmm. And, and a couple of the specific schools have really shifted that like they've they've um you know, they, they've gone from struggling in, in some areas to embedding some common practice because they focus on specifics. And, you know, it might have happened without the walkthroughs, but the fact that they've used that and helped them, it make, they feel this sort of sense that it was part of their journey. So that, that's the kind of feedback we get. So I, I'm quite excited about that, having provided people with this toolkit for doing the work they were doing before, but just helping them do it better. And why do you think they are so successful at helping people to implement things. I know in the first book, um, I'm, rather than just say walkthroughs, I, I think it's easier if I just say the colour, so the yellow one. Um, uh, in the yellow one, you talk a little bit about the importance of the way that you're disseminate, disseminating that information through the diagrams. Why do you think that's quite important to help teachers to understand and implement the ideas in the book? Because, I th- well, there's a number of different elements to it. And Oliver Caviglioli is, is really good on the whole theory behind all of this, which he thought about extensively. So there's something about, there are a number of different elements. One of them is the fact that you're breaking an idea down into steps, which you then can absorb one by one. So it, it codifies a, 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 what might be a complex idea into some small steps, which means you only have to think about one at a time. So that, there's the idea of chunking things up into small steps. That's the first thing, the five steps aspect. But you could just have five steps in a in a list on a di- on you know or without a diagram. So the next thing is the visual mm-hmm. visual aspect is really important because what that does is it creates a, a a static non-transient view of what looks like a kind of teaching scenario mm-hmm. to help you form a discussion around. Mm-hmm. Now, without that, and I found this has really changed the conversations I've had. So when you're looking at something together that's not moving and you can constantly refer to it in a layout of five steps, mm-hmm. you, you can focus on the idea and you, you're both looking at the same thing or everyone in the room is looking at the same thing. So you're talking about the, something that you have in common. Whereas if you're just trying to share my me- my memory of your lesson and your memory of your lesson or your understanding of this idea and my understanding of this idea all verbally, mm-hmm. we're not necessarily sure. We're, we don't have any common thing. It's, it's transient, it's moved on, it's ephemeral. So the visual aspect gives you a kind of anchor for the conversation to happen around. And, and then there are some 
prompts are some of the some of the diagrams are quite abstract because how do you communicate an idea like thinking you know it's, it's yeah like it's, like it's a it's not you can't touch thinking it's so you have to represent it but it it's prompts so i find this for me all the time so it's sort of visual sometimes can be quite abstract but because it is you think about what does it mean why is that the picture and it helps you it just prompts you to think so there's, there's so many levels it works on but the main thing is that visual a sort of static impression of a, of a process which allows you to discuss it without it moving and without it changing and i mean just to help people visualize this who maybe listen to the podcast and haven't seen the walkthroughs would it be fair to say tom that i'm not being crass in saying that the the way that it's visualized is kind of akin to say if you're looking in a manual for gym exercises and you were to see you know diagrams of how to do a specific movement to lift dumbbells for a, a particular exercise it's kind of mapped out in that really clear uh, in that really clear way. And I'm using that analogy because you would never know it looking at me uh, on the video for this call, but I am actually quite keen uh, at going to the gym. But obviously since I've had a child, that's completely slipped off my radar com completely. But I think that um, that that analogy of, of seeing those exercises played out is kind of what you've done with something that's far more complex and abstract in, in teaching practice. Do you think that's kind of a fair comparison? I think I think those yeah anything which has multiple steps to it, it, it is akin to that yeah and sometimes Oliver has used that analogy in, in talking about the steps like boxes having steps or dance mm. yeah like drills almost yeah so we'll do this then do that now I have to say not all of them are like that so some of the walkthroughs mm. are very procedural so it depends what it is so if it's if it's a strategy like uh, think pair share. It's mm. very procedural. Do this, then do that, then do this. Then. So the, the steps are quite physical. They're, they're actual actions that you take one after the other. So they have that one, one, two, three, four, five feel about them. But quite a few of them are, say, lists of things to think about to frame your thinking. So some of the ones to do with curriculum, mm. you don't do them in that order necessarily, but there are like five ways to think about this type of curriculum issue or five aspects of curriculum design that you might want to consider in this dimension and that the order is not significant it's just five ideas so some of them are of that type yeah but so the ones which are more like the instructions for lifting dumbbells are are in there and probably those are the ones which teachers use more of in their in their cpd and the rest are sort of background knowledge and if you listen to this please don't worry there is no requirement for you to lift dumbbells in the classroom that was just a completely abstract uh, example um but or to do boxing or dancing yeah exactly um you mentioned a bit in the book about lethal mutation and about how the designs kind of pre prevent can you explain that concept a little bit so a le lethal mutation is where an idea gets distorted uh as it's sort of transferred from one person to another to another to another mm. by the end of several sort of copies it's no longer that the, hasn't got the integrity of the original idea. Yeah. And that's lethal because it's actually problematic in its new form, uh, not enhanced. So, you know, some mutations are can be positive. If you develop things, you call them sort of enhancements, I suppose. Mm. So a le lethal mutation happens when there's nothing to refer to to keep the idea uh, intact when it's passed on. So 
and that's what's typically happening with lots of the training. And life, I used to find this myself doing training before I had the walkthroughs. I'd be saying, here's the idea. I'd model it. I'd talk about it. I'd show it. But six months later, you'd find people that kind of morphed it into this other thing because the mm-hmm. description of it wasn't clear enough for them to hold on to over time. Whereas now it's easier to have that conversation and, and keep the idea intact because of the, of the steps and the visual guides. So the walkthroughs is designed to prevent that lethal mutation happening as much. And certainly from what I've seen speaking to schools, it, it seems to be pretty effective at, at, at doing that and giving that clarity of focus. I speak to many schools who are you know, saying that they're just focusing on you know, one or two walkthroughs a term or a half term they're really focusing on on that specific teaching and learning activity um to to enhance that before they move on to the next one they have that clarity of focus within their team so i think it's a really elegant and and beautiful way of of setting out some really complicated and abstract ideas so um so yeah thank you thank you for writing the book or books Uh, it's been a it's been a joyful process for the last couple of years it's been great working with oliver you mentioned about five steps, and within those five steps, you have this adapt um, strategy, if that's the right word, or yeah. uh, focus. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that works? Yeah, so adapt adapt is an acronym, which mm. includes the word adapt itself. So it's a sort of yeah handy. One of, our, one of our walkthroughs in volume three is called the adapt of adapt, which is a bit like convoluted, but. It amused us. So basically, it's an acronym. So A stands for attempt. So when you're, when you're trying to implement an idea, you have to have a go at it. Mm-hmm. If you just talk about ideas in abstract, you, you don't really necessarily know what it looks like. So it's useful to try things and say, like, okay, I, I know what this is look, looks like. So the attempt is key. And then the, the, the D stands for develop. So sometimes develop means much more subtle steps like, you know, looking at the resources that you would use exactly and the exact questions that you would ask, and you're, you're getting more fine detail. Then the A for adapt means sometimes you need to change things around a bit. So, you know, with, with think, pair, share, the think time, you know, sometimes you don't do the think. Sometimes you just to say everyone talking your partner and you don't want them to think on their own first. It's not a hard and fast rule. So an adaptation of think, pair, share is it's just pair, share essentially you know sort of and, and do you know what i mean so adapt has this this you know this caveat which is that this is the, the basic idea but you can flex it depending on what you're trying to do mm-hmm. then the um the p um stands for practice so once you've formulated the idea you've got to keep working on it practicing it means doing it multiple times refining it getting better at it and then t stands for test which means is it working so how do you know it's working? And not just sort of guessing that it's working because it feels good, but evaluating that it's working because you're seeing an imp- improvement in student performance or in some form. So that's what ADAPT stands for. And we put it on the bottom very uh, walkthrough to, to remind people that this isn't some rigid, fixed guide. It's a framework for the for, for an idea and then you now need to make it feel like it's your idea in your context. So we, we, we find people like that message that it's all about taking ownership of things and making them work for them. Yeah. And um, the way you set out each book is so incredibly clear. You've kind of got these three sections of why, what and how. 
I was wondering if you were a Simon Sinek fan by any chance when you when you wrote these books. Have you heard some of his work? Oliver might be. It was his idea to do why, what, and how. Uh, so, but I I only got that from him. So ah, I see. So Simon Sinek is a really famous business management speaker, and he he has this fantastic book called uh, "You Start with Why," uh, and he talks about how the best organisations in the world all understand their why or why they do something. And you've kind of set all of your books out in the, in this kind of way. So. Uh, I, and he has this golden circle of why, what, how, um, which which is very much how your books are set out. So I just thought you might may have been a fan. Um, uh, well, no, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I, Oliver is the person who mainly does all the reading about the the nerdy stuff to do with, you know, like leadership theory or, or design theory. And he, he's an amazing, he's incredibly knowledgeable about all of this stuff. So he, he's he's the one that brings the kind of level of structure. So he's he's studied designers and the architecture of, of graphic you know, magazines and how they're laid out. So he's got this amazing knowledge of people who thought about cognitive science, but also visual representation and or cognitive psychology, you know, the sort of interpersonal psychology and how people respond to things. So he... He has a great wisdom about that, and he's definitely oh. was really keen to put it in the books. Like it's, we, he wanted the books to kind of walk the talk in terms of being accessible, allowing you to, to navigate through, and the why, what, and how helped us organise our ideas. Yeah, really. so you're kind of the dream team. You've got the, the educational noose and the, the the understanding of all those different concepts, and he was able to visualise and, and present that in a way that was actionable and people would be able to use in a meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, a great collaboration in that sense. That not not none of us, neither of us, could have made the books without the other. So that that's that's brilliant when that happens. So, um, well, he probably could have got someone else to write some of the stuff I wrote. To be honest, oh, that's very humble of you to say. I don't know. I'm grateful that he asked me about that. If I didn't exist, he could have asked somebody else. But I think without Oliver, the books wouldn't exist. I think that's very true. Oh well, that's very very kind of you say i'm sure i'll try and get oliver on at some point in the future we can nerd out about design then but let, let's nerd out about the teaching strategies for for this um for this conversation so within each book you you kind of focus on very similar areas so you've got that consistency of of, of practice in each of the books and you've got six areas that you you look at um and i'll just quickly reel reel them off for people who are listening so you look at behavior and relationships curriculum planning Explaining and modeling, questioning and feedback, practice and retrieval, which are all titles which people will be familiar with. And in fact, some of the other guests that we've had on this podcast um, earlier, you know, people like Tom Bennett, who talks about things like behavior. We've got had Zoe and Mark Enzer, who are some of the people that you refer to in in um, in your second book. The sixth one that you have is something that people may not be familiar with unless they've perhaps read your other book, The Learning Rainforest which is Mode B Teaching. Um, so could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about Mode B Teaching and the ideas behind that? My, my whole thrust of that book was to try and to weave together sort of evidence about effective teaching mm. with a kind of value system that we always work in. And there are lots of things which make a really rich, exciting education and curriculum experience, which are sit outside of the domain of instructional teaching 
Mm-hmm. But there are things which you don't do every day. There are things which you don't do, you know, it, r- routinely. But without them, the curriculum is kind of, you know, is much more kind of limited. And they 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 definitely are really important. A bit like kind of, you know, mit- minerals and vitamins in food. You know, they mm-hmm. they only you only need so much of them, but you definitely need them. And so there there are things like opportunities to work independently uh, without you know and make choices so being things to do with making creative choices or pursuing an inquiry that you decided yourself mm-hmm. or working in a group to develop some skills around working collaboratively and, and that needs to be done very well projects open-ended projects where you decide the content the structure the form of response and and so on and things like play detective where you, where you are set problems to work out what the answers might be rather than just being explaining them like grammar detectives in the French or something. What's the rule here? You know, rather than being told the rule and learning it, you're, you're asked to find out what the rule is. And deep end is to do with being set really hard problems. So you're told this is a really tough problem, but you know how to solve it, but you, it's going to be difficult. So that you, you encourage students to think, wow, okay, this is going to be hard, but, so I'm not expecting it to be easy, which means I, my mindset is geared towards problem solving, but not panicking and working way around problems. And so there's all sorts of different ideas in, in the learning rainforest. Mm-hmm. And when we when we wrote the, the the instructional coaching kind of subtitle for the walkthroughs, we were thinking, well, if it's going to be a fairly comprehensive guide to teaching, when we've got behavior, curriculum, questioning, and so on, we can't leave all that stuff out because it's mm-hmm. not like teaching is just about instructional teaching. It isn't. So we thought well, we'll have a mode B section. Yeah. Because there's no simple category for all those sorts of things. They're just, it's all sorts of stuff, giving a speech. Now, where does that fit? And so it's basically a bucket of all the stuff, which is not instructional teaching. And in the learning rainforest, I called it mode A and mode B. So we just stuck with that. So it kind of, it, it, it just helps reinforce that idea. But it's it's just a very loose category for, for that type of thing, and, and I I, th- I do think it's underdeveloped in, in a lot of schools. Uh, it's sort of some some of the things in the mode B section of walkthroughs some children never do, mm-hmm. and, and so we're trying to encourage teachers to develop some of those aspects so that the the the, the students' curriculum experience is that much more varied and rich. It's just really interesting to put that emphasis as well on like a teaching manual around other elements like the environment and the culture and how that can impact the overall teaching practice. I think it's really quite enlightened to to look at that that area as well as the kind of obvious areas of of teaching learning as a in a holistic way to to enhance that that overall practice. So I, I was a big fan of that, and I just thought it'd be really interesting for some of our um, our listeners who maybe haven't. You know, looked at your walkthroughs before, or, or heard about that, just to hear a little bit more about that that mode B element. Um, one of the things which I was really, uh, w- which I found really interesting with the books as well was, obviously, you have 150 different techniques or ideas that are outlined in your yellow, blue, and green books uh, book respectively. So walkthrough one, two, and three. Um, when you're working with schools, and I know you work with schools all the time, delivering CPD and training, how do you see schools using these walkthroughs? So there are 150 ideas in here. Surely you must have some ideas which are used quite consistently to start with by schools. 
And if a school wanted to start using walkthroughs, what would you recommend? Where would, where would you say to them to, to start? We, we get asked this all the time. I, mean, I, I think that, that what, what we would start with is whenever people ask me that, which they do a lot, I always say, well, you need to start with solving the problems they, that you they, they don't need to now. They can just listen to this podcast. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but I, don't tell, I don't give them a straight answer on that because I think it's a, a mistake to do that. So if I've never been to the school, I, how do I know what the particular issues are? But I can say there are some common ones which typically come out, but in your school, it could be something else. And so I, I usually say, well, focus on something which you find that is common across the school, which you, when you walk around a school looking at lots of lessons, you think this comes up quite a lot. So it could be student talk is a big factor. If it's behavior, then that's very straightforward, the, the priority. But if it's to do with, say, you know, a lot of sort of fairly passive students who, you know, don't sit there, don't talk very much. Is it possible to sit in the lessons, lesson after lesson and never be asked a question? It, do we get lots of quite short answers, that type of thing? So you think, okay, so there's an issue around here about questioning, around talk. Let's look at that. Is it to do with, say, retrieval practice? You know, do we have a whole thing where the teachers are saying, you know, the students don't remember anything and how do we get this knowledge curriculum going and, and our quizzing isn't good? So you could say, let's look at retrieval in that area. So start with a, an issue which you think is quite common across many teachers so they'll feel a sense of common challenge and then pick on pick up two or three walkthroughs around that now what, what often comes back from that type of process is around questioning mm -hmm. uh, a fairly fairly classic combo would be something like cold calling which is establishing the, the, the principle that the teacher selects who's going to uh, answer yeah. So that students form the habit of being ready to answer any of the questions, mm -hmm. thinking more. Linked to that is there's lots of spin-offs from that. So, for example, a, a popular one is lots of schools is say it again better, which is a strategy where having got a, a response from a student, you help them frame an even better answer so that they mm -hmm. develop their thinking even further. So you don't just take short answers and move on, you get them to free frame and that's a very popular one. And linked to that is talk partners, think, pair, share, because very commonly teachers find that if you've selected three, four, five students by cold calling, whatever, what's everyone else doing? And they haven't a chance to verbalize. And so pair share has mm -hmm. many, many benefits, which is everyone gets a chance to think, to talk, to air their, their, their ideas. Mm -hmm. And often having done the pair share, they're ready. They're more ready for the cold. So both of those techniques are mutually reinforcing mm -hmm. that type of thing. There's, there's, I mean, there's so many. So those those are very common ones. And there's a whole other strand which is quite common, which is around uh, quizzing, weekly and monthly review, and forms of retrieval practice, and another whole set around modelling and scaffolding. So I mean, but what what you find is each popular one is a sort of set of ideas that are connected mm -hmm. and then people can then uh, develop further so then what people have we have this toolkit thing called the cluster builder so these are clusters of ideas and some schools have used it you see all these colored hexagons on our twitter feed this is the cluster builder and schools use them to organize these different walkthroughs into a kind of set of ideas which makes sense in the sequence of them and how they're framed and those span all three volumes. So, so uh, there's no real hierarchy to the books 
although quite a lot of the ones I just mentioned are in the first book. Mm. There are some really basic ones also in volume two and three. Uh, but that, that's, that's, that's the main thing. If, if people ask me straight up, well, okay, <laughs> give me one, one rule to work on. And, and I would probably say, you know, outside of behavior, because if it's if that's not the priority, I, normally something like cold calling is the one to do. Because I really feel like if you, you apply don't it have, to any classroom, really, can't you? Yeah, and, and I feel like it. And if you that that should be the platform for everything else. So unless you have cold calling established, which means the default is I ask who answers, so you have to be ready to answer. Yeah. And sometimes you might put your hand up when I've asked you to. Sometimes you might work in a pair. Sometimes you might use your whiteboards. Mm-hmm. The rest of the time, most of the time, be ready to answer because it could yeah. be you. It creates that culture of readiness, doesn't it, in the class? Yeah, so it, so many things spin off from that mm-hmm. that if you've got if you haven't got that nailed, so if you've got calling out and hands up dominating yeah. most yeah. of the time. So you've all You've almost, you've almost laid out like this this huge um, encyclopedia or, or list of all these really useful techniques that segmented into different areas. Then schools can understand their own needs, their own areas where they need to develop from their own systems and mechanisms. And then they can take your walkthroughs to develop their own bespoke routines or, or, or workouts almost, if we're using that fitness analogy again, that's going to help them to improve um, in the, the areas that are specific to them. And they can take ownership of that. But you have, you provided that kind of toolkit for them. And I, I'm, and I'm assuming for your, um, through the training and the CPD that you offer, you can help to guide schools down what a, what a routine or a, a, a set of walkthroughs would, would look like that would work well for their own specific needs. Is, is that right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, so one of the, one of my, fairly regular bits of work that I do is with, with there are a number of uh, local authorities or for, former local authorities or mats with large numbers of schools yeah. who are, who, who we, we're doing the programs with them. So um, there's too many to list them now. And so quite often the way I engage with them is via um, Zoom where multiple school leaders or head teachers are on a, on a call and they're sharing what they're doing. So you've got different schools saying, oh, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing and asking for advice and me coaching them through and saying, okay, well, that's a nice idea. Try this, try that. And what I find amazing is how it, creative people are and how, how, you know, useful people are finding just to sort of, all these school leaders have often never met each other before, even though they're in the same area. And, there they are having conversations about techniques in their classrooms, which because they can talk about it together. And sometimes people, you know, they've they've used it to frame their teaching and learning policy, and they've got so walkthroughs to do with stretch and challenge, walkthroughs to do with retrieval, walkthroughs to do with oracy and 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 speaking confidence, or walkthroughs to do with building writing. And 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 I find that really creative the way people have linked ideas themselves. And the language, the walkthroughs and the visual aspect of them helps them to kind of create their own pathways. 
So it's it's it does the giving people the, the tools and vocabulary for that type of thing has been really amazing. And I just love hearing schools describe their process and why they chose them. I mean, yeah, it must be yeah, it must be really interesting. And I don't know if you have any I mean you don't have to name names or anything like that in terms of schools, but can you think of any examples where you've seen your walkthroughs implemented really well? So I know in the book you have a whole house section. You talk about how you can use tools like instructional coaching uh, to to actually implement um, these walkthroughs in practice and different models, triads, and so on. You know, to to actually de- deliver the deliver and implement the, the 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 use of the walkthroughs. But have you got any examples of where you've seen this implemented really well and and what schools have done? Yeah, I mean, there are loads of them. I mean, it's we've it, we've got now. Well over two thousand schools using walkthroughs, and mm-hmm. so and I've you know visited several several schools I go to say you know once every half term or something, and others I've been to just for one visit. So I've seen a lot of schools using walkthroughs, and talked to even many more. So the best practice I see is where there is a good uh, sort of you know launch has happened so that. There's been a really good introduction to the walkthroughs. Everyone knows where they are, what they are, and they've modelled some techniques. And then they've been the staff have been involved collaboratively in mm-hmm. deciding what what the walkthroughs focus will be. Where I find this is particularly effective, which is the most common approach, I'd say it's not it's not. I'm saying it's the best approach or the only approach, but it's the oh, most common. Is where schools decide to do a core set of walkthroughs for across the whole school especially Mm -hmm. in the first year. And the reason for doing that is to get everyone up to speed with a similar set of ideas, to get a sort of big step change across the whole school of a whole set of ideas being implemented because everyone's talking. And what's great is when there's been a training session where the staff have looked at the walkthroughs and have been able to volunteer their ideas for the ones to pick. And then Mm -hmm. that's fed into the team sessions in each subject in the secondary or each year group in a primary Mm-hmm. And instructional coaching there's a real range of, of approaches to that so I've, mm. I've seen really good instructional coaching developing no, to be honest I mean because walkthroughs as, as a resource has only been going for two years and yeah. the first year of that because of COVID a lot of it was kind of remote and get, just getting going so there aren't that many schools that have got a sort of deeply embedded coaching culture already after two years using walkthroughs that would be yeah. impossible to have done in that time but the ones who are furthest down the track have got say a nucleus of people who have been recruited to be the coaching squad mm-hmm. and they have training for that and then they they are doing coaching with a small number of people each regularly mm-hmm. throughout the throughout the school year and the walkthroughs is the language refer, reference for that just like we described in the book so I've seen that done. I've also seen schools where they've just got a much smaller version of that. They're just pioneering that with a small set of people just getting going. Mm-hmm. And others where they've really taken it as a, a structure for their team. So they're not going to go down an individual coaching uh, path, but they're going to, they're using it as for triad, say so three, three people or two being coached mm-hmm. by, by another person. Or even teams, like a, each team in a secondary school is using the walkthroughs to drive their CPD sessions in a month after month. So there are lots of different ways of doing it. 
And I can think of just like so many schools where it's just amazing that you, that you say, well, we're going to see year five now. They've been working on Say It Again Better and mm-hmm. Share. And you go in there and it's just, bam, it's just brilliant. The kids are doing it. It's so habitual. You can tell they do it all the time because of the way they respond to the teacher. It's this exemplary practice and they've worked on it for six months and it's become a real feature of how they teach. So you think, yeah, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, that's good. So I can think of several times where that's been the case. So it's nice to see that. And when teachers, uh, so when when that instructional coaching has been delivered, with the walkthroughs, you've got that kind of focal point, I guess, to, to to look at. And I did a podcast episode with Jim Knight um, a few months ago, and we spoke all about what instruction coaching was there and how it's this the middle of two ways, basically. And um, you you mentioned a little bit. I can't remember if this was in one of your books or on your website. I don't know. I've got one of those memories where when I read something, I randomly remember things. Um, but you, I think you mentioned about something called detachment gain in terms of when feedback has been delivered um with a walkthrough can you explain how that would differ a little bit between um giving feedback with that walkthrough as a point of as a concrete anchor point as opposed to someone just giving feedback to someone more more generally so we just just describe this through what the way we describe it is three-point communication Mm. and it's a funny thing, like, I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm looking at my computer, but you're on it. And so it's sort of, it's not literally the same as if you were in front of me face to face. But it, imagine if I was just talking to you directly about your practice. Every, everything I said about the lessons would be directed at you because you're the person there and it's just you and me talking and that's how people talk. So yeah. even though I'm trying to be sort of very analytical and uh, not make it personal and just say this is a shared challenge i know that it could be there's all sorts of power dynamics around sitting on the opposite sides of tables and and people can take that kind of critique personally and then there's a whole other barriers and that's something you need to be aware of so you're having a conversation with someone where you're explicitly discussing their performance and things Mm. it it becomes about you and them now, the three-point communication introduces a third party area, which is there's this other thing where instead of looking at each other, we're both looking at something else. And that can be on a screen. Or quite often these days, it's on my laptop. You know, I've got a walkthrough on my laptop or a document which we're writing into on there. Or it can be the books. So looking at the books. The right. And, and it's, it's a funny dynamic, which is because you're not looking at that person. You're sort of sitting next to them, talking together about something you're both looking at. Yeah, it just frees it up somehow. And it, I, Oliver described described this to me in theory, like this is a theoretical idea that he'd read about and believed to be true from his experience. But I'd never thought about it. And t- but now I just do it. I use this, and it just is really true. It's just really amazing how effective it is. We're just sort of sitting there and saying, "So, what do you think? Is this something you're doing? Is that an area you think you need to work on? I noticed this. I noticed that." But because I'm not directing at them, I'm directing to the book and talking about the book, which is like providing the five steps almost say, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? So I, it's not me inventing that to say, which might imply a criticism. It says it there on the book very neutrally. So regardless of what I think of you, it says it there. Have you done this? Did you do that? 
And, and so I don't have to even come up with that agenda. I just run through it. And it just really helps. It just says, right, okay, so let's talk about this bit. So in the think pair share, it, the idea is that you do the think time before. Now, I, do you think that's something you're doing? And it's like, it just helps me have that conversation rather than me going, Absolutely. I didn't notice you doing any think time. Like I'm judging. Yeah. It's way less didactic, isn't it? I, I mean, yeah. I was really interested in this because we deal with this all the time with VO as well with, with having, in terms of giving effective feedback. And I think what you've got here fits in perfectly with that instructional coaching model as well of that partnership approach because you can have a senior leader coaching a you know a novice teacher, an early career teacher, and that power dynamics kind of dissolved a little bit when you're both looking at this walkthrough together because you're then both in solution seeking mode and you're both looking at this this central anchor point together rather than it like you say being this this kind of like, i i'm telling you you need to do this better or i'm telling you did this well kind of conversation and having that de the defensiveness and the uh the emotions that that come as a part of that feedback process and as Absolutely. as john hattie talks about uh feedback you know the the most important th thing is is what people actually do with that feedback you know what what you do with it is not is the most important part of it um and i just think it's such a, a clever way of um disseminating useful information in in, in a way that's pragmatic to implement um so, but what i find that this is the fine it makes me laugh and this happens because i wrote the book even though a lot of the ideas i didn't originate in it, on purpose i didn't originate them they are the ideas which teachers talk about so we borrowed yeah. from, from everywhere of course but there's a sort of, even though it's got my name on the cover, I sort of say things like, okay, so what does it say here? What it says is this, or what's the next steps for us to think about? What's it telling us? And it's like, it's it's outside of me. It's there. And it's yeah. like this neutral voice is suggesting that we discuss it. And the teacher can see it for themselves. So they're going, oh, I know I don't do that bit. It's I, I know I should, but I never seem to do that. Or that's something I, I need to think about. And because it's prompted by the walkthrough, yeah. it, the... the the agenda is is equal has we have equal access to it and and then we can just talk about our perspective on that now i i'm the, the teacher might say yeah i think i'm doing that well and i might say oh i'm not sure if you are <laughs> kind of thing. and then but at least it's started off by something neutral uh, or it might be the other way around you know but it, it, I, think it's it was, just, it's I mean a good a good way of thinking about it, i think is maybe like when you look at a tv show like master chef or or great british bake-off and you have the judges and they give really cutting feedback sometimes. Yeah, but yeah. the but the contestants kind of just accept it because they can see in front of them that their cake has a soggy bottom. There's no denying it. They can see <laughs> right there that yeah. the cake is and 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 it, it's a very effective feedback loop. And then that person will go on and, and, and improve. Whereas sometimes in in an observational context, you'll have someone say, I don't think this was done right, for instance. And then that person has to then reflect on their own perception of what that teaching was like and then compare that to the feedback that they're receiving. And it's just not a very, it's just not a very useful or efficient way uh, for, for giving feedback. Whereas I think your, your walkthroughs provide a little, just much more clarity in it and a, and a, um, a, a better way of, of um, giving that feedback across. And there's a, there's a nice thing, which I was referring to today in a webinar we did earlier, um, which is in the volume three walkthroughs, which is written by Josh Goodridge, mm. which is about responsive coaching. And he, he in in a, in a walkthrough he wrote, he includes the thing around uh, developing teachers' capacity for situational assessment. So mm -hmm. you know, can they see 
can they see the problems that you see? And so when you're coaching somebody, part of the value of having the walkthroughs toolkit is to say, are you able to evaluate your own practice better than you were before? And in some ways, even more powerful than the coach's input. If you've ended up with a teacher who's just more forensic in the way they analyze their own practice day to day, that will sustain them beyond. And because their situational assessment has become more acute and they're looking for things which they wouldn't have looked at before because you've helped them look for those things. And that to me is really important. It's, it's, a, it's a useful aspect of the whole process that we're developing teachers to be able to drive their own process better, which is what they're doing most of the time when you're not with them. So it, it's a really useful sort of element to I think. So what's next on the cards for walkthroughs? So you obviously got you've got three books. Are you going to stop at three, or are you going to be more like the Fast and the Furious movie franchise and go on kind of, you know, to four, five, six, seven, eight, and so on and so forth? Well, so, well no, we've we've really we're trying to hold a line. I mean, various people have said to us, you know, can you do a book on leadership, or can you do a book for, uh, you know, just for foundation stage or something, or mm. and and. I mean, that's an interesting idea, isn't it? Because obviously teaching is so diverse, whether you, you yeah. know, if you're in, in early years compared to teaching A-level students, is there a case we, different? We've tried to, we've tried to I mean, I, I go to some earlier settings where they're using walkthroughs and as far well, as they're yeah. their books were written for them as much as anyone else. But other other early years teachers have said that it's harder for them to see it. Man. But that's that's just a difference of perspective. Yeah, I guess there's some yeah. elements, like you said, the cold call, you know, you could probably use that in any context, in any yeah. in classroom to, to an extent. And there, are, there are other techniques that might be more specific for different use cases and so on and so forth. And that's the beauty of it. You, you can customise it to your own needs. Yeah, and I, and I, I mean, I won't read them off now, but there, I have done this work before with people where you say, what are the kind of early years walkthroughs? And there's tons, and mm. it's just more than you need. So but anyway, I mean, I think, so we we aren't going to write another book because... The bit, one of those bits of feedback we get all the time is people just feeling overwhelmed. Like we've tried to get ahead of ourselves and produce this whole toolkit, which is nearly finished with all the videos and slides and everything. And really our main focus now is implementation. So in the next mm. couple of years, we're just focusing on developing a team of trainers, which we're working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not just me going into schools. Oliver does some, but at the moment, I'm really the main person that can go into schools to do the training in person. And so we're developing some team of trainers. We've, we've got a partnership with a local provider who's going to be providing a remote support for schools and all that type of stuff, which at the moment is still developing. And more and more tools to support the coaching conversations, so documents to, to complete and that kind of thing. So it's more about guidance for how to use the toolkit. We're not going to write more and more walkthroughs. And then, <laughs> you know... <clears throat> The other, the other de- development is just reaching more schools. So we've got various projects with, we're quite excited that a district in the US has, has brought into us. So we've got our first school district in, in America and we're going to be going to America to do some training with them and going to Australia to do uh, a set of uh, talks and sessions with teachers in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane in, mm-hmm. in November. So that type of thing is quite exciting. So yeah, still- definitely. Spreading, spreading what we've already made so it goes deeper into schools and into more schools. That's what we're really focusing on rather than writing more books. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. So have you got quite a few schools in Australia using it already? Or 
or is this that an area that you uh, want? I think we've got 30. Okay. 30 that's, schools. That's a decent number, isn't it? Number, yeah, we're pretty pleased with that. There's a company called Teaching Sprints. In fact, they've written a, a, a walkthrough in volume two, and they have a process called Teaching Sprints, which aligns really closely with walkthroughs. Uh, they're run by uh, a guy called Simon Breakspear, who's really great, enthusiastic uh, teacher trainer, a bit like me. And so we, 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 he's, he's sort of my sort of link person. So that's that's quite um, exciting. Bless you. <laughs> it's all right. We're all human. Um, no, it sounds like there's some really bright things ahead, and you've obviously made such a, a big impact with with them already. Uh, certainly, I can see that from the people that, that, that I've spoken with, and I'm sure you you see it all the time with the schools that you speak with as well. Um, so. Uh, yeah, thank you for writing them. I think it's great that we've got this kind of blueprint um, for for what good teaching and learning looks like and really excited to see what you and Oliver come up with next in terms of going in even deeper into those into those walkthroughs. Well, thank you. I mean, it's great to have an opportunity to talk about it. It's, it still sort of blows us away, really, how, how well the whole thing has done so far. And we're excited by the response from schools. So it's it's brilliant to go into schools and see I'd, something that you know started off being brainstormed around my kitchen table and now you're going to a school where a teacher is using techniques that are informed by the practice that the CPD they've done with the walkthrough is helping them. But, uh, you know, but I'm really excited. Generally, there are, there's so much great discussion in our system around instructional coaching, around CPD. And in that way, I don't think there's been a better time to be involved in education because the knowledge we have in, as a system about mm. what makes effective practice and, and has, is, it, we, it, we were in really good shape there. So more and more I'm seeing schools investing in this type of process rather than thinking it's all through sort of control mechanisms. It's mm -hmm. all about educational mechanisms and developmental mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And I feel that's a really exciting sort of turning period that we're in where, you know, 10 years ago, all school leadership conferences were about accountability. How do you judge an outstanding lesson? Mm. How do you help people to account? What, you know, capability proceedings, all this other stuff. And now, I mean, it's partly because of the world I'm in. Most of the conversations I ever have are about how do we do good CPD? How do we do good coaching? I mean, that's great, isn't it? And it's just, a, it's like, this is great. This is the way, this is the way it should be, you know. So I'm really excited to be involved with that. And, uh, you know, the, the whole, this whole territory with the podcasting that you're doing, mm -hmm. and the platforms that you're working with, like to sort of get ideas. It, it, all these tools are about development, developing teachers. And it, I, I think it's, it's pretty exciting to be involved with that. And look, I'm looking forward to carrying on doing it. Yeah, I was saying, I was saying to you earlier, wasn't I, that the whole idea around this podcast is exploring big ideas in education that are transforming education in different ways. And um, I was just saying to you earlier about how your walkthroughs books kind of do that anyway. So if you, if you don't want to listen to my podcast, just read it, read, <laughs> read Tom's books. Just read the first bit, and you'll see basically all the key um, the, the key strategies outlined in five steps. And then you don't have to read all those research papers. He's, he's He's kind of mapped it all out for you really neatly and, and succinctly there. Um, I'm going to end with with one interesting question, I think, because I'm conscious of your time. Um, I'm going to ask, in terms of your walkthroughs, um, I sometimes speak to 
um, some of the people that I spoke to on the other podcast, like, I think I spoke to Mark and Zoe Enter about this on one of our episodes about um, the, the the teacher plateau, which I know has been debunked a little bit now, um, and the difference between, I guess, early career teachers and, and more experienced teachers with CPD. How do you find the walkthroughs are implemented in those different in those different groups from what you've seen in practice? Is, are schools using this more so with their early career teachers or have you seen schools using it more so with experienced teachers or or across the board? That's a, a good question. I think I think I, we see a lot of it with early career teachers. And mm. even though people have got the early career framework and all their ECTs are involved in one of these providers, so and walkthroughs isn't connected to any of them, uh, yeah. we're still finding, yeah. as we thought that might... Kind of loosely connected, isn't it? Because you, you, a lot of the skills... Uh, kind of transferable of course i mean all the, the, the content is very is the same i mean it's that it we don't sort of claim ownership of the of the, the ideas particularly but what we're quite pleased to see is that a lot of schools have used it so even though that the, their teachers have got that program the walkthroughs are in there so that that's good to see and that, and often that is the, the main use but actually I, I most of the schools I have direct contact with through the, the programs. I mean, it's the other thing. It's the rest of the staff. So whole school training, uh, whole, informing team structures. So I, it's quite common for schools to think they've got their ECTs sorted because they've got a program and mentoring. Mm. It's kind of more, how do we get everyone else to have a toolkit for reflecting on their practice? In terms of the plateau thing, this is one of the things I find interesting is mm. actually how... So re- recently, I, I, I've sort of started explaining this by thinking about getting away from judging teachers and talking about, are you good? So the idea of a plateau is that you implies that you, you're gradually, you're continually improving and you stop improving. But I actually think that's a false notion Yeah. because after a certain number of years, the variable isn't you, it's the people you're teaching and the material you're teaching. So it's hard to keep getting better at it because you're faced with new people and new. So the challenges are, how do I get Michael and Mo and Jennifer to learn to add fractions? I, I did well last year with the other, those other guys, but now I've got some different students. And you can get sort of better at that, but only to, to a degree. And I actually think that from context to context, class to class, topic to topic, mm. the variables in how successful you are in teaching in that, that sort of detail over is bigger than you're kind of notching up your confidence year to year. And that's yeah. totally natural. So it can be an experienced teacher has just got what they consider to be a tricky year four class or a difficult year nine. And if you were to say to them, you're supposed to be improving, you say, well, yeah, well, I didn't, I, I had much better students last year. These ones are harder to teach. And that's the reality for them. So that, that's for me why that plateau thing is a bit of a false idea. I don't think you get better and better and better. I think we get good enough to teach and function, and then we're constantly solving new problems. And depends on the problems that we're presented with. So we need to have a whole range of tools to use, depending on the kind of situation we're in. I actually did a talk on the Teach Plateau in a conference in Belfast the other week, and I didn't think about it in that way. And that's a really enlightened way of think think about it. It makes complete sense how about what you said about the variables there. I was talking about the um, fact when it initially came out, it was just an average that they looked at. And then obviously newer research now has shown that there's a real range and a scale for that for that um, plateau. So it's kind of 
debunk the idea that that it's just like a fixed notion of of um uh, of teaching practice being being stuck but i think you're absolutely right when you know what you've what you've talked about there about the 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 context of teaching as a practice the, the with the students changing each year the it's the curriculum may stay constant but because that because that intake changes year by year it's really quite a hard thing to compare over time really interesting hmm uh, Wish also, I thought of that. <laughs> well, the whole notion of, um, of, that, of, that, of that measurement for me, I mean, so for example, let's say you watched an awesome art teacher mm. and an awesome geography teacher. What, what possible tool do you have to say they're better or worse or better? Or yeah, how do you measure it? Yeah, so it's really like it's a sort of graveyard of, of sort of measurement validity as far as I can mm. say. But the teacher themselves can have a sense that they are solving a problem of that particular class they have that year and getting better outcomes from them than they were getting. And they, they, they solved some of the problems and those students did well. The next year, you know, it, so for me, it's, it's just not a helpful discussion to have about teacher measurement. It's just all about solving problems in the context of specific students and assessment in itself of those students' outcomes is complicated enough without sure. pinning it to the teacher. So sometimes people would say that's a bit of a cop-out. Surely you should be able to measure how good a teacher is. Well, I just think, well, not really. I think it's a judgment you make. It's very, very subjective. And yeah. It's, it's like how do you measure how good a piece of art is? Well, yeah. Uh, it's a similar kind of thing, right? It's just a very complex and, and nuanced thing to measure. It, it really is. And it's a bit like saying, you know, I've got three friends and... I really like Mike. He's a good bloke. And I really like Tom. Um, or what's your favourite song of all time, Tom? <laughs> or what's your favourite film? Just exactly. tell me your favourite film of all time. I exactly. I it's, mean, I probably do have a few of them. Yeah, uh, but it's, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because it depends course, on your mood yeah. and what's going it's, on. It's the, the gap between how much I like that film and that film versus that one and that one, it, these are not measurable. So mm. you, you don't measure them. You just sort of vaguely talk about, oh, I love that. That's not as good as that. That could have been better if, yeah. So anyway, that's what I feel like when you're talking about experienced teachers. I don't think talking them about them as having plateaued is helpful. I just think that there's an inevitability to the the cycle of long-serving teachers having wave after wave of students who every time you have a reset of getting to know them, finding out what they can do. And the problem-solving element is just repeats. It's like you go back and start again because you're getting to know them again. And it's not like you're gradually getting better at teaching from the state, you know, based on where you were at the end of last year, getting better. You you always reset with new students, and that's something which I think doesn't get factored in. Anyway, I could have someone recorded telling me that's nonsense. Yeah, that's well, yeah. I mean, I believe teachers do get better continuously. Uh, over time, but I also agree that it's really difficult to measure and uh, and prove that. Um, I, I'd say they get more knowledgeable. That you get more knowledgeable and more experienced, more battle hardened. But better is not how I cra- I'd char- characterize that. So I got better and be- I got more and more experienced, battle hardened through my career. But was I better? Well, no. I mean, some of the te- classes I had towards the end of my teaching were way harder than the ones I started with. Mm. So I, I got much better outcomes with the students I started teaching because I was much more 
tuned into them and could teach them from with a fairly degree of confidence. But teaching lower attaining students when they're 14 and 15 how to add fractions and stuff is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And <laughs> I don't think I was as good at it as I'd have liked. So, yeah, it, I, maybe I could have got better at doing that if I'd focused on just teaching that type of maths to that type of student for many more years. That's true. But do you know what I mean? I feel all those things, it depends you know, on, on so many variables of the context that I feel like the measurement element. And it's almost unhelpful to even to, to focus on it. As yeah, it pro- yeah, yeah. Particularly so, if it's driving government policy, well, which yeah. is what you don't want. No, it's true. So, yeah, so, you know, this is where, um, we, 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 you know, working across lots of schools and multi-academy trusts, it's important to get a message across when you're involved in a product which is to do with the teacher development, that it's not about turning crap teachers into good teachers. It's mm-hmm. about encouraging everyone to on, go through a program of, sort of professional learning, which helps them solve the problems that they're faced with. Sure. And it's, a, it's a support for teachers to solve those problems. So the problem-solving language is really important to us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um well, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you. Thank you so much. I could literally speak to you for another three hours, but I know that you would, <laughs> you would find that incredibly uncomfortable because uh, it is late on a Wednesday evening. So, um, but thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And hopefully I'll catch up with you at one of the conferences that you're at. Yeah, in, that'd be great. And um, speak to you again in soon. And, uh, and thanks again.